Good afternoon, Chuck Morse, host of Chuck Morse Speaks. Welcome to the program. We'll be joined shortly by Larry Schweikart. He is the co-author, along with Dave Doherty, of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the American Revolution. Uh, this is a book that uh, I'm about uh, three chapters in at this point. I'm looking forward to having Larry on the program at Tufts University once the students are back in September. It gives a solid and, uh, you know, not I wouldn't say conservative, but actually more conventional view of the circumstances around the American Revolution. Um, and it's not filled with the ideology of the left, people like Howard Zinn who view it in, in a Marxist context that um, – that it was, you know, a war by the, you know, by the to overthrow the rich and this sort of stuff. Um, he talks about, and I think quite eloquently and and uh, quite well, you know, quite in a very well documented format, the uh, the fact that the American Revolution uh, was a was a Protestant revolution. It was a conservative revolution in the sense that it embraced some of the best elements of the Enlightenment. It embraced the idea of um, rights emanating from God as opposed to the state, something that was articulated by a man that could be described as the grandfather of the American Revolution, that being James Otis, and James Otis's sister, who is unsung among feminists for reasons that are interesting, that being um, Mercy Otis Warren. And that... uh, it was it was essentially a reassertion of sovereign rights by the citizens as they had become more usurped by a more activist British crown and parliament. And uh, it gets into uh, the fact that the American Revolution really started uh, very much at the very beginning with the Mayflower Compact, with other documents that essentially recognized and established um, Basically, you know, the book gets into all of these things in, in a very succinct way. Um, Larry, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thanks, Chuck. Sorry, I, I just now saw the note. I was to call in. Sorry, I would have been here two minutes ago. No, that's okay. And I want to have you back once Tufts University is back in session, where I do a show that's gaining a lot of notoriety on that campus, as you might imagine. Um, but uh, right now I just want to get into the uh, – I've read the first three chapters, and they're excellent, the Politically Incorrect Guide to the American Revolution. And you set up a, an interesting uh, examination of the true antecedents of the revolution, pointing out that it really started right at the beginning with the Mayflower Compact. Can you talk a little bit about the the, the mindset and the, outview, the, the viewpoint of the uh, – the early colonists and how that contributed to the American revolution. Absolutely. I mean, they, um, with the exception of the Jamestown colonists who were a little different because they came over primarily for economic motives for gold, silver, and so forth. The, um, Massachusetts colonists, both the pilgrims and later the Puritans came over for religious freedom from the, um, Anglican church. They wanted to purify the church of England. The pilgrims did not think it could be done within England. They had to leave. The Puritans who came over under John Winthrop uh, were not of that same viewpoint, but they still 
shared something with the pilgrims, and that was they all believed in a congregational structure for the church in which people in each church congregation made their own governance. They they governed themselves. They didn't have a top-down pope, bishop, archbishop set up, or archbishop of Canterbury in the Church of England. And this was critically important over the next 150 years. Because uh, mm. even in the Presbyterian churches that started to develop a lot of, of local bottom-up governance in religion um, that went hand-in-hand hand with the common law that all these people were seeing. And the common law yeah, it's had... Yep. Go ahead. Well, the common no, law had to, to note do that with... The, Go ahead. The, the common law had to do with the fact that, that uh, people believed God put the law in the hands of, in the hearts of the people, and that the people, again, elected or selected rulers who would enact that law, as opposed to European divine right of kings, top down, which later was picked up by Napoleon. So in both cases, mm-hmm. you had a structure, government and religion, that, that was bottom-up, was grassroots, as opposed to being dictatorial, tyrannical, or top-down. Well, what you described is one of the most keystone elements of the American ethos, which is the rights come from the creator and not from the state. And in a sense, it's that very principle which makes this nation exceptional. You know, we, uh, it was the first time, or at least in a major sense, that this concept was recognized. It is a concept that's in the Bible. It's in the New Testament as well. And, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it basically led to this idea that um, the state does not grant rights. The state simply protects and, and is a means by which we can defend God-given rights that are, that are inalienable, as Thomas Jefferson said. And uh, this that, the that is absolute, element, That's absolutely right. Um, and if you look at England that they uh, institutionalized this with the glorious revolution of 1688, where Parliament put the crowns on the head of the king and queen, William and Mary. But already we had had uh, 60 years of basically practicing this common law. So we predated the glorious revolution in England, meaning we were the first nation in history to do this, and we were the only nation to have both a significant uh, Protestant foundation, Protestant religious foundation, and common law foundation. Nobody else has that. And that's why America is exceptional, not because we wrote stuff down, but because we had these Mm -hmm. two factors no one else had. Right, and then also our Constitution and our laws are negative laws in the real sense. They're not saying we're going to do this for you. What they're saying is that the government essentially will not do this so that you can do it. Um, you know, these are, in a sense, laws that recognize the, the natural rights of the citizen. Now, as far as the congregational element, I just want to comment. I'm, I'm, in, I'm from Boston, and I've noticed that congregational churches, they can be either very far left or they can be very far right. They can be very conservative. Mm-hmm. It depends on the congregation, and it depends on mm-hmm. what their makeup. And I think that's the classic American model. I mean, we, uh, you know, we, we recognize the right of the individual and the right of associations, which are individuals getting together for common purpose. 
to to craft their own way and to 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 uh, reflect their own values, and that's something that that's uh, that's quite unique. Now you talk about the uh, the Scotch Irish influence on the American Revolution, which is something that I didn't really know much about. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. Virtually all of the Southern campaigns were fought um, significantly by the Scots-Irish and North Carolina, uh, Southern Virginia, South Carolina. And and these people were strongly anti-Anglican. Again, here's the religious aspect that they are they are anti-Anglican church. They don't like the top-down kind of governance for the Anglican church. And, of course, many of these guys are militias, but, but I think uh, one estimate is that, uh, you know, a half to 60% of the fighting in the revolution was conducted by Scots-Irish. So they play a key role in, in our freedom. Now, you talk about the Stamp Act as being one of the trigger points of the uh, revolution because the... Uh, the colonists had genuine fear that this was a step toward denying religious freedom in America. Could you talk about that? Sure. Stamp Act was an act by the British government that required a sales stamp and thus a tax on almost everything. Every transaction, business transaction, uh, weddings, uh, divorces, uh, births, deaths, almost everything required a stamp. And eventually the reasoning was, look, if they, can, if they can tax all these things and they can tax everything that involves a paper document, whether it's a birth certificate or a death, how long before they are going to be taxing Bibles? Now, this may be kind of a, you know, well, who, who would really logically believe that? But you have to understand that to the, the Protestants, especially the Puritans in New England, Reading the Bible for oneself was a key element of their religion and a very big difference between themselves and the Anglicans or the Catholics who did not read the Bible for themselves. And so anything that threatened that was a threat to the very uh, religious existence of the country. And and then, by the way, look Hmm. what happened um, later, you know, 10 years later. So you have the, uh, the Quartering Act, and what do they do? England as punishment for the Tea Party in 1773, one of the quartering acts that people don't talk much about is that they they reallocated the ter- the American colonies under the um, the authority of Quebec. It's called the Quebec Act. And who who's in right. Quebec? Well, those those evil Catholic French. Catholic. I mean, yeah. it, it keeps coming back That's to right. this fear of, of. And I gotta tell you, you know, I had a great quotation. And I, I, I don't bring these out of thin air. When I see a quotation, I get it from someplace, but I swear I cannot find where I got this from, so I haven't used it. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was ascribed to John Adams, and it said that, that prelates and lawn sleeves are more to be feared than a division of redcoats. <laughs> no, I believe that. I mean, especially in Massachusetts, there was that, that was part of what actually uh, precipitated the um, the witch trials, but that's another subject. The point is that the British drew a line across the Appalachians and and uh, basically banned Western expansion by uh, settlers and uh, in, instead placed it at least in a in a nominal sense under the authority of the Quebecers, which of course meant that the Catholics would eventually sell, uh, you know settle the Ohio Valley and that drove the colonists nuts. Well, I'm glad you brought up the proclamation line because the British actually vacillated on this. They went back and forth, I think, three times. 
And part of the proclamation line was, you know, they're not going to allow settlers west of this line in the Appalachians. Well, two things, already people were settling there. So, so that was a case of the government acting against the wishes of the people. Had it been the American colonial government, they would have figured out a way to basically legalize those people. But the other thing that happened was that various traders and merchants had um, uh, various contracts with the government for being able to deal with the Indians, and now all of those were suddenly null and void. And, and so that was another economic issue. And, and we, Dave Doherty and I make very clear the revolution was not about money, that, that it's estimated that the burdens of the Navigation Act probably came in 1770 to about at the high end, a dollar a person a year, and at the low end, a quarter a person a year. Nobody's going to go to war over a buck a year even back then. But right. the money was an indicator of, of what the British government was doing and, and how they were doing it, and that concerned everybody. I want to ask you something that I don't think is covered in your book, and it's just I don't want to go too far into it in a brief sense, but... Um, the colonists, starting with Massachusetts, had begun issuing their own money, uh, the, what they called yep. scrip. And it was based upon low-interest loans to farmers and businessmen. And uh, the interest would go into the state treasuries or the colonial treasuries and used to build infrastructure. It was interest-free money. It was paper money. It was not backed by gold or silver. And uh, it was extremely successful. It led to a – it contributed to a great prosperity – Benjamin Franklin went to England and he was asked by members of parliament what contributed to this great success. And according to what I understand to be in his, uh, his diaries, he said the success is that we have our own money. And the British yes. looked upon that and they said, no, we have to stop this. So they, pa they, they um, passed a law. They, they sent out a degree. I think it was in the 1750s. Currency Act. 50s. No, the Currency Act. That's right. And, Okay, which they banned colonial script, and they said that all uh, monies, all transactions, and all taxes have to be paid in gold, which is very mm -hmm. scarce, of course. And and the Bank of England would maintain a monopoly on the issuance of any currency. And this led to a depression for the first time in in history uh, on the Western world, which which was greatly a contributor to the American Revolution. And one of the first acts of the Second Continental Congress was to issue continental script. And this drove the British nuts. This is one of the things that contributed to their full-scale invasion, basically, of the American colonies. Well, you know, the history of paper money is very interesting. Uh, there, there's a debate over whether or not the phrase you know, Congress has the authority to coin money in the Constitution means actual metal coin or any kind of money. Uh, I've written a number of books on business and economic history. It was my specialty for many, many years. And, and my own position is that I don't mind a central bank as long as other banks are allowed to compete with it in terms of money. The, the problem isn't that people could print money. The problem is that they, there was not enough competition with a central bank to keep it honest. Right. Uh, a central bank will be kept honest if it has to compete with private monies. And I've always said, if you want to rein in the Fed, the best thing to do would be allow Chase and Citibank to print their own money. <laughs> but but no, you're I absolutely mean, right. Not to mention, yeah, I mean, not to mention that Hamilton's bank, which had a 20-year charter, the first 
Central Bank. That was mostly owned by the government in the same way that the Massachusetts Land Bank was owned by the the, um, the Bay Colony. And uh, then it only became corrupted in the Second Bank period. That's when Andrew Jackson came along, a great Scots-Irishman, by the way, who uh, who took on the bank as a an imperial uh, usurper of uh, of political power, which it had become. But but uh, well, no, I take it. I take exception. I take exception to that. In Patriots History United States, we present a a different take, which again is um, the bank was not particularly corrupt. It was actually pretty good. The state bankers loved the Bank of the United States. We had great prosperity. What Jackson wanted, and I'm apparently the only one to ever find these these letters in his collection. I don't know why I can find it. Nobody else can. But there's many letters in his collection that indicate Jackson liked a central bank. He just didn't want a central bank that wasn't controlled by him. And he set out Levi Woodbury to create a whole new central bank structure that the Democrats would control. And and that's why he was hell-bent on destroying the the Bank of the United States. It wasn't that he disliked banks, period. It's like he didn't like Whig banks. (laughs) No, that's fascinating. I mean, I just – I'm actually doing some research on this topic for a book myself. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's really helpful. Um, you talk about the in the lead up to the revolution, the development of the Articles of Association of the Association, yes. which was beginning the, of the boycott of English products, and it also coincided with the development of local militias. Their actions were not always savory. Um, what, what interests me is the fact that militias, which were recognized by local communities or counties, that they existed in this country right up to 1909, I think. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about their involvement in the revolution? Sure. Well, first, let's quickly explain these associations. The association uh, in general and the associations under them uh, wasn't a 60s rock band that did Along Comes Mary. The associations were, were uh, documents signed by all of the merchants and, and farmers and artisans in all in thousands of, of towns and, and, and cities uh, that said, we're going to boycott British goods. We're not going to uh, support England economically at all. And it led to a decline of almost 90% of trade with England and, and hurt England quite a bit. Well, merely putting your name on those association lists would open you to charges of, of treason, uh, certainly, uh, you know, uh, other lesser charges. In other words, it was not a small thing to sign on to the association list. It, it marked you as a, a rebel, or of course, as we would call them, a patriot. Now, the militias, uh, there's two, I'm sure you know this, there's two types of militias. There's the general militia, which was every able-bodied man, I think down to 16, up to 60, uh, had to turn out once a month for drill with musket and flint powder, that sort of stuff. But the ready militia was a certain select number of men from each uh, county who had to maintain 30 rounds of ammunition, flint, and powder and so forth and be ready to turn out in the, you know, at a minute's notice, which is where we get the, the, the minute man thing. And, and so uh, you know, we were very much bottom up whether it was from the associations or from the militias, the whole war was a bottom-up exercise. You know, it's interesting. That feeds into the modern ethos of 
law enforcement and policing being something that is local in America and that technically the highest law enforcer in the land is the county sheriff, uh, that when the FBI was created, it was not given law enforcement authority, still isn't. It was basically nothing more than an investigatory uh, entity that would help law enforcement crack crime. But, um, you know, this is something that we've, in America, we've always rejected a national police or a national even there's always been controversy around a standing army. You point out that Washington, after the after Yorktown, advocated just a small national army that would essentially mm-hmm. train officers who would then supplement uh, local militias in time of conflict. Well, and that's also Jefferson's view when he becomes president. So it's, it's interesting that Jefferson, one of the more pacifistic, if you want to use that phrase, of the early president sure. creates uh, the, the um, you know, West Point, the uh, uh, Army Military Academy, to do just that, to train uh, officers. Getting back to the, the police function, you know, the, the theory behind that, that local uh, control idea is, you know, John Brown is out there causing a ruckus and getting drunk and so forth. The local people know him. They know his his antics, his actions, they know what he's more likely to do. They know if he's serious or not serious. And if law enforcement comes from higher levels, you lose that that local knowledge that may prevent trouble or, or uh, keep it contained. And, of course, the civil rights uh, movement comes along and they say, well, that's just an excuse for, for using this, this local knowledge to keep people down. So there's been this struggle between the the civil rights side and the the local knowledge side. One side sees it as a good thing, and the other side sees it as a bad thing. Oh, now, Larry, I'm going to have you back on, hopefully, once uh, school's back over at Tufts so that we can reach the Tufts audience. And you talk about this being uh, your book, that being the uh, Politically Incorrect Guide to the American Revolution, as a counter-revolution view by today's standards, whereas the mainstream revolution view is influenced by people like the late Professor Howard Zinn and, and other leftist advocates, a- activists. What is their view of the American Revolution, and how does yours differ? Well, uh, typically the, the leftists uh, view the American Revolution as instigated by a group of rich white slave owners who are trying – it's all economics. It's all economic determinism. They're trying right. to, to protect their position – in society, and I think that's why our book just blows these out of the water, because it, once you understand that the associations were the precursor to the Declaration, that argument's dead, because the associations were tens of thousands of ordinary people, 90% of them not slave owners, many of them had never even seen a slave, and, and their, their goal was uh, not to be uh, oppressed by the British, and once again, it had less to do with money and the level of taxation than it did with the policies of how the taxes were enacted without any um, consultation with the colonists and, and denying them, as they would say over and over again, their rights as Englishmen. So then the, Revol- the American Revolution was a genuine, organic movement Uh, of regular people who were essentially saying that we want to reassert our right to 
sovereignty, our right to our own destiny, and that we feel that the uh, this distant power, this tyrannical, unelected power, is usurping those rights. And um, in that sense, the American Revolution, you point out, was probably one of the only, if not the only, successful revolution in history. And you contrast it with the French Revolution and with revolutions in modern times in Africa and, and elsewhere. What, what was it that the, made the American Revolution as such? And, uh, and, and contrast that with these others. Sure. Well, we go right back to what I started the program discussing, which is the things that made America exceptional – Two of the four pillars are key here, and that's common law and a mostly Protestant religious foundation, both of which are bottom-up governance. And so when you get to the French Revolution, you have a society in which the revolution is, is um, the religion in the country is top-down, and the revolution itself is anti-religious, whereas the American Revolution was very pro-religious, and you have church after church supporting the notion of, of revolution in America. The other thing that you have in France is a top-down governance. They were used to being governed by uh, Louis XVI, and when he was gone, it's not a bottom, bottom-up governance that takes over. What takes over? It's Robespierre, and then that's followed by Napoleon, and Napoleon goes so far as to codify all of the top-down governance and what's called civil law, so that when France expands and gets colonies uh, and when Napoleon conquers all of Europe, virtually all of Europe, all the way to Russia, is controlled now by a form of civil law. Common law is replaced by civil law, which is top-down. The government knows what's best. Mm. And then finally, you look at, at Russia, the Russian Revolution. The Russian Revolution is not a revolution so much as a coup. Uh, staged by Lenin and about 80,000 of his devout followers. It wasn't Marxist, as we point out in our book, A Patriot's History of the Modern World. It, it didn't follow one single Marxist precept. Rather, it was just a, a military takeover by a group of terrorists, and, and they were tougher and meaner than all of their opponents put together. And also, the, uh, the, the reason why these other revolutions failed, whether it be the French Revolution or the Bolshevik coup or others, is that they promised more freedom and an end of oppression in their countries, but they delivered less freedom and more oppression. Whereas the American Revolution was basically an honest movement by people who were seeking more freedom, and in fact, they got more freedom once the revolution was, was completed. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair observation. Also, another factor that we had that, that when you come to some of the African, African countries, for example, that they did not have, we had a period of about 100 to 120 years of, of what the English called benign neglect. Uh, basically, because of the time and distance, governors in America had to observe common law. They had to do what the people wanted, more or less, or they literally would be burned out of their homes and tarred and feathered. I mean, there were severe consequences for crossing the people and not doing what the people wanted. England maintained a kind of general tacit control that kept us from doing anything really stupid, like starting a war with Spain, for example. But other than that, the American colonies for about 150 years were more or less on their own. And I kind of liken it to the status of teenagers 
you know, they, they have the keys to the house. They can come and go as they more or less please. They probably have a car where they can drive around in, but they can't mortgage the house to go up to Vegas and party for the weekend. So there, hmm. there's limitations on what they can do, but there's a great deal of freedom within those limitations. The African colonies did not have that. African colonies were, were ruled pretty much by England beginning to end and not benign neglect, but just often just neglect. But uh, they, were, they never had a chance to practice republicanism and self-democracy. And they may not have had necessarily the antecedents of Christianity. All right, my no. guest is Larry Schweikart. He is the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the American Revolution. Uh, Larry, we're reaching the end of the program, so let my listeners know where they can get the book. Sure. Uh, they can go to PatriotsHistoryUSA.com, PatriotsHistoryUSA.com, Amazon, or any online bookseller. Any local bookstore is probably going to have it. All right, Larry. Listen, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Great talk. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Look forward to talking to you again. All right. Take care. Okay. So um, I shall return at uh, over at Tufts University, uh, where I hold the fort every Thursday at 10 a.m. You can check out my books. They're available at Amazon.com. Just look at look it up by putting my name in the server, Chuck Morse, M-O-R-S-E, like Morse code. Thanks, everybody. Have a good afternoon and take care. Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how.